1: Patriot and PhD with a passion for people and a penchant for politics. Dr. Wendy brings you the headlines streamlined, news you can use. It's time to be informed, engaged, and entertained. Now, here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick.
2: Good evening, and welcome to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick, and my co host, Larry Dersham, and I have a great show for you tonight. We're going to talk about some really hot topics in terms of the intersection between COVID restrictions and education. And then the second half, we're going to welcome in Bridgette Gabrielle, who's a New York Times bestselling author and national security expert. Um, Very fiery commentary. You may have seen her on, on some of the major networks, so we hope you'll stick around for that. But when we start here, we're going to take a trip to the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, where three freshman girls were suspended for not wearing masks outside and off campus. Now, I'm going to tease this story. We're gonna get into it a little bit, but I'm gonna use the, the very oft frequently cited analogy. A picture is worth a thousand words. But how about worth $16,000? Because that's what the story is about. There was a photograph taken of these three girls maskless that ultimately cost them each, their families, $16,000 in tuition. That is how much each family was due out because of the the fact that these three girls were suspended. So lots of people are watching the story and, and following it, and they understand the community concerns and the school's concerns about having these regulations that were really zero tolerance. You have to wear a mask, whether you're inside, whether you're outside, whether you're on campus, in the community. But then there's some others that are saying, you know, does the punishment fit the crime? when you have a photograph that was turned over to the university and ultimately cost each family that $16,000 tuition. I mean, Larry, I know you've been following this as well. And, you know, are those, is that sort of the, the dueling narratives at play here? Yes, we have to make sure that we, we care for the health of the, the faculty and the students, but also that this is a pretty steep price to pay for this violation.
0: Totally, too, very steep. It's, it reminds me a lot, Wendy, of the case we talked about last week of the cursing cheerleader, where she was off That's campus, right. and somebody sent a Snapchat, and they sent that to the administration, and she she got uh, punished for that. And here we go again: these kids doing something off campus at a uh, apparently it was an off campus party, and somebody passed the photo to the school administration, and it's really like the punishment doesn't fit the so-called crime, which in my opinion is not a crime at all. And it's, well, so it's more of a
2: policy violation. Right. And I think one of the if, if I had to argue this one in court, I would I would point out one of the distinguishing factors is swearing off campus doesn't impact your peers, not wearing a mask off campus and then of course coming back onto campus, perhaps that does. And that's no doubt something that the School's going to argue. But this issue of inconsistent enforcement uh, is huge because I know that the, the, the families of these young ladies are saying, look, you know, the hockey team celebrated a win about a month, you know, the following month. They didn't have masks on either. But timing matters. And so a timeline will no doubt be constructed for the jury if it gets that far, which most of these cases, as you and I know, don't. But the timing would matter, as well as uh, some of the other uh, considerations in the community. You know, we forget how quickly we forget that closer to the beginning of this year, we saw cases spiking around the country that really pulled everybody back into what we would call the purple tier, where things were closed, where you had to wear masks. You couldn't gather in large numbers, and you certainly couldn't gather in large numbers without masks. So we have to sort of look at this through the rear view mirror and deciding whether or not this is fair. We we wouldn't think it was fair today, but is there something to be said for, well, maybe there was nothing wrong with enforcing the policies that were in effect at the time?
0: Yeah, again, I think because of their off-campus activity, that's what kind of gets me. If you're on campus, fine, but if you're off-campus, how far would this go? What if somebody took a picture of you in your own home at some sort of a a celebration, a birthday party, perhaps? They send that in. Well, that's
2: right. And that's where that's why this long arm of the school argument gets a little convoluted is it's one thing to say, well, maybe it's a, a community party because you remember their policy said in in our community, you have to wear a mask. It wasn't just on campus. But would that be different if they stepped into a private home? If there were people there that were from different households, um, but the bigger argument I think that people are making here, and just I've been following this online because lots of lots of voices are weighing in because you know what parents are thinking you know those three girls today, my daughter or son tomorrow, uh, in terms of the money that was lost here, is this issue of notice, and the families that the girls are saying shouldn't this first violation have been a warning? Should we have gone straight to pull them out of school, yank them off a virtual class, lose $16,000 in tuition, or should the first violation have been a warning? Or is that just reserved for the first time you get pulled over speeding?
0: I think that, well, one of the things that I don't, I've never, haven't heard about the right to appeal. Isn't there an appellate process for this where you could protest And they're
2: working their way through that. Okay. They're they're working their way through that, but you're right. Wouldn't that be the first place you would go?
0: Exactly. And uh, I know that this is such a heartbreaking thing. First, they, they, wouldn't allow them to come on campus then they cut off their remote access on the computer so basically that whole semester is gone and i know for one of the parents she said you know why did they do this to my daughter she was a valedictorian and class president of her high school and she did everything right and now they're getting her for this and it's, it's it's part of me for me it's it's kind of a uh, uh, hysterical, part of the hysterical response that we've seen, in my opinion, across the United States to this virus. It's not fine-tuned or targeted to older people or people with co- comorbidities, but it's like everybody. And the punishment is so uh, horrible. It's, it's so strict. I I, I, I
2: suppose the takeaway uh, in terms of exactly that, that the punishment is so strict, the takeaway would be know your school policies. Yes. Uh, Sure. This family may ultimately win their lawsuit, but that doesn't help them financially in the interim or doesn't help their daughters academically in the meantime as well. So I know lots of parents are probably reading the fine print that they wish they'd read earlier regarding how some of these schools uh, enforce violations of their policies. So let's move, if we can, from the maskless trio of college students to masked members of Congress. So I understand that uh, injustice is not just being discussed academically, but also politically, Larry.
0: Right, Wendy. There is a bill that probably many of our listeners have heard about. It was called H-1. That's the first bill that was introduced in this congressional session. Well, it passed the House of Representatives, and then it moved into the Senate. Uh, in the Senate, they called that same bill S-1, and now the Senate is working on it. Now, the Democratic Party, they call that bill the For the People Act. But the Republicans, they tend to call it a different name. They call it the Corrupt Politician Act. So what is it? It's 790 some odd you can't pages. Be both, can it? You can't be both. <laughs> and they, the devil is in the details. So what this does, it seizes authority of the states and places the federal government in complete control of federal elections. And just so you know, uh, the Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1 of the Constitution says that the states can set the rules for elections, but. The Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations, which is interesting. So the Congress technically under the Constitution uh, can take that right away to federal elections. Now, if you had simply a state election, like I think we're going to be having possibly in November uh, to recall the governor, there's no federal uh, representative or senator being elected. I think the states would still have the power to control that. But it's it's very I think it would make uh, possibly Election fraud easier if there's a party in power and they want to stay in power, if it's all consolidated in the federal government and not at the states. And what else does it do? Now, this is what really gets me when voter ID laws are banned. We've talked about this before. Why would you ever ban ID uh, I you mean, know, we, as you we talk d-
2: about this, Larry, contrast it with some of the other things that I know we've pointed out and that others have pointed out that you do need identification for. And as you go through this, you know, what is the distinction that's made, just so our listeners know, between requiring voter ID for so many other things that we have the privilege of doing in society? And why is there such opposition to requiring it to vote?
0: Exactly. Why the opposition? To me, it's not in good faith. Why would you do that? You need. Uh, ID to get on a plane, uh, to buy alcohol, to get into concerts. Uh, it, everywhere, almost everything that's important in our life, we need an ID for. And to me, are you saying that people don't have the wherewithal to get an ID? Isn't that in itself kind of um, discriminatory against certain Is it groups true? of people? Is
2: it easy to get an ID? Because I know I've heard that argument too. Is it easy?
0: Oh, absolutely. It, it is easy to get an ID, to get a driver's license. But here's another thing it does. Online voter registration in all states is required. It also allows, unfortunately, they're going to register people automatically when they're 16 years of old, uh, 16 years old. And it doesn't matter if you're a citizen or a non-citizen, which is going to allow people that are not citizens to vote. And if anybody questions this, there's a fine of a hundred thousand dollars and or five years in prison if a poll worker says, "Would you present your ID, uh, please?" and they're reported. Can you imagine such punishment? Talk about punishment!
2: You know that uh, that makes my first our first tale in comparison. <laughs> sixteen thousand or a hundred thousand dollars. I think I'd rather pay the sixteen thousand.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely! It registers all convicted felons. Why would you ever want to do that? And it mandates. You know, go ahead.
2: I think that part of the, the, tricky, the tricky part for us in sort of breaking some of this down is there's such a wide variety of news reporting on exactly the intent behind a lot of these proposed laws and a lot of what the the consequence would be. And sometimes they're well-intentioned, but people worry about discriminatory enforcement. It sounds like this might fall into that category.
0: Yeah. Contact Diane Feinstein. You can find her on the Internet. She's our senator R. Alex Padilla. He's our senator. And say that you oppose S1. Please, folks.
2: Uh, well, a lot of people want to read the law first before they take a position on it. And that's a great point that we always try to make on the show is there is nothing like actually educating yourself as to what is in particular legislation. And I say that, and you and I can appreciate this as lawyers, because there's very persuasive advertising about everything, every position, everything on the ballot, everything that you can go out and buy or anywhere you want to go. And I know we both have lots of colleagues that say, you know, read it, learn it, live it, love it. And that's the way you learn how to vote. So don't touch that dial. We're going to take a short commercial break. We're going to have a great guest on the other side. So stick with us today with Dr. Wendy. We'll be back in a flash. Today with Dr. Wendy, I'm Wendy Patrick, and my co-host Larry Dersham and I have a very exciting guest with us tonight. And we want to sort of uh, mention that we teased this in the first segment because you do not want to miss what this woman has to say. Larry, who do we have on the line?
0: Yes, Wendy. Brigitte Gabrielle is a national security analyst. She's a New York Times best-selling author and chairman of actforamerica.org. Her current uh, bestseller is called Rise in Defense of Judeo-Christian Values and Freedom. Welcome to the program, Brigitte. Uh, Thank you, Larry and Wendy. I'm delighted to be with you.
2: Brigitte, I've actually met you in the the Fox Newsroom uh, in New York City. Um, But, you know, I know you meet so many people, you do so much commentary but you've always impressed me with really the passion you bring to the causes that you stand for. And I know some of that stems from your upbringing. And I know you spent much of your, your young life growing up in a bomb shelter in Lebanon. What in the world was that like?
3: Oh my goodness, you know what they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and that's where my strength comes from, I understand what happens when people turn a blind eye to evil thinking oh, it doesn't affect me now it doesn't matter, I don't need to do anything it's over there Um, well, we are realizing now that the world has become a very small place we do truly live in a worldwide community Uh, we are a community my 9-11 happened to me in Lebanon in 1975 when radical Islamists blew up my home, bringing it down, burying me under the rubble wounded. Uh, I ended up in a hospital for two and a half months and later ended up living in a bomb shelter underground in an 8 by 10 room without electricity, without water, and very little Uh. food. And that's where I lived for seven years of my life, robbed of my youth. Um, so I, when I watch today what's happening, uh, for example, in, in, in Israel, and we're all watching the news and hearing the sirens and the bombs falling and people running to bomb shelter, I understand the trauma that that brings with it and how that affects our life. And if 9-11-2001 taught us anything in the West, is that our life can change overnight. And just because you are comfortable today, If you don't keep your eyes open to protect freedom, you can lose it overnight and find yourself fighting to survive. Um, And I believe uh, my experience and my background, because of the way I grew up, because of what I had to go through, um, I didn't mention that I ended up moving to Israel, becoming a news anchor for World News in the Middle East, uh, dedicating my life to reporting uh, the news, to, to shine a light on evil and tell people what they can do to stop it, um, and that's how I met an American war correspondent, and I came to America. That's how I ended up in America. Uh, but that's what drives me. It is that experience that brings out the passion in me to fight for what is right, to speak the truth as much as the truth may be uncomfortable, and to do whatever we need to do to to stop the radicals in their track.
0: Yes, Brigitte, you say you state in your new book, Rise, that we're a nation divided, That radical leftists hate the flag as much as radical Islamists do because it represents ideals that are contrary to their warped worldview. How have radical leftists been able to gain such a strong foothold in our country today? And what's happened to our patriotism? Is it still there?
3: Uh, well, they were able, to, this is a loaded question, Larry. Uh, they were able, uh-huh. the Democrats were able to achieve such success because they were methodical in their activism for decades. You know, they say an overnight success takes 20 years. Uh, we are just waking up to what they were doing because now they are very successful. But in our country, people were asleep and very apathetic. It's not that they did not know what the left were doing. I mean, all of a sudden people, you know, were talking about the tree huggers and the environmentalists. Oh my goodness, how did they got to be so powerful? Especially if you were in real estate and trying to build anything and you realize when you start getting permits, the power, how difficult the environmentalists had made things over the last 20, 30, 40 years. But now when we look at our society, our country, and the changes within the country, going from the flag being a symbol of freedom to now the flag being a symbol of hate on college campus. Um, And pretty much right now the country is divided. You know, if you're walking your neighborhood and you see an American flag waving on a porch, you know they're conservative, you know, because a Democrat will not fly an American flag on their front porch. So that's where we are as a nation. But they got there because they were organized, they were committed, they were passionate about their cause, and they were involved and engaged. Our side listened to talk radio, they were informed, they were educated, and they thought to themselves, well, I vote every two years and that's all I need to do. And in their mind on the conservative side, they thought that's what activism looks like, and that's how we lost our nation, and that's why we are now fighting so hard to get our nation back And that's why I encourage people, if my message resonates with you, if what I'm I'm saying resonates with you, join us. Go to our website, actforamerica.org, actforamerica.org. Join us click on Get Involved, sign up as an activist or sign up to start a group in your community. We will train you. We will mentor you. We will give you the tools to become the most effective citizen, helping us take back our country one community at a time.
2: You know, Bridget, one of the things that distinguishes you from so many other commentators and speakers and people with platforms is you really have such a such a history and really having to, to live through much of what you wisely caution us to caution our, ourselves against in the future. And this apathy that we talk about, I mean, everybody wants to stand for something. We want peaceful transitions of power, but we also want peaceful discussion about what's best for the country. And one quote that you made that I really think, um, Uh, really sums it up very nicely. You know, it's all about the sound bites, as you probably know, being a former news anchor and now a commentator. You said 2% of the passionate will always rule 98% of the indifferent. What does that mean in practical terms in today's world?
3: Well, uh, uh, look at it this way. When you're watching the news right now and you hear about the transgender rights, transgender write this and transgender write that, you would think half of America is transgender. You and I know that they are not, but they are very passionate about their cause. Again, it goes back to the minority drives the majority. The majority are irrelevant. It is the minority that drives the agenda. It is the minority that is passionate that makes a difference. And so this is why I say 2% of the passionate will always rule the indifferent because the passionate are the ones who show up to rallies when you need them to. The 2% of the passionate are the ones who make phone calls to their elected officials. They are the ones who write letters to the editor for their local newspaper. They are the ones who show up to city council meetings. They are the ones who call their mayors and tell their mayors to stand with and support the police. They are the ones who call their state delegates and share and tell them about uh, what they feel. They're the ones who hold their elected officials responsible, they are the ones who call their uh, state board of election or their school board to talk about or complain about what is being taught in our textbooks. Those are the passionate that make a difference, and this is why we need to empower them, we need to stand with them, and we need to encourage people to become more active. Again, on our side, a lot of people do not know what to do. Um, Look, you have a radio talk show, you hear from a lot of people who are frustrated about what's happening in our country, the state of affairs in our country. Uh, And they call and they express their frustration And you share information with them And they are extremely educated The problem is they do not know what to do with this education. They say, "Okay, now I understand the problem, but what do I do? I do not. Wa- I do not know what to do, because the Republicans and conservatives failed in community organizing. You know, we used to laugh at the left one. They talk about community organizer. Well, you know what? That's how you get things done. It's all on the community level, and that's why." We at actforamerica.org, actforamerica.org, we not only educate, but we teach people what to do with the education so you can make a difference in your community, so you can uh, influence your city council members. Remember, city council members are the ones who decide to defund the police. The mayors are the ones who tell the police to stand down. The local state delegates decide that they want to use the minion machines in their elections so we teach people how to communicate with your elected officials to make an impact so you can protect your community
0: well it seems that whenever leftists try to disgrace our country military heroes or police they always they have control of the language they veil it in terms of social justice tolerance and equality how do we conservatives kind of take back the language and counter that tactic
3: Um, We just need, again, we need to speak up. A lot of conservatives are afraid to speak up. Look, how many people do you know, uh, I know you are in San Diego, so how many people do you know are afraid to say anything because, oh my gosh, you know, the left expresses their opinion. If you are together with your friends and the left is expressing their opinion, you know, usually the conservatives keep their mouth shut because they're afraid to say anything. They stay silent. The, when people stay silent they are a part of cancel culture because if you do not answer your friends who are lefty who are talking politics with you and they feel free that they can talk politics with you and you remain silent because you are afraid to lose their friendship you are contributing to this uh, culture of silencing of fear of cowardness in our society
2: uh as I think that's a are- great I think that's a great way to uh, to sort of bring our segment to a close is the point you make is a good one why not simply have healthy dialogue. You said, you know, when you're talking with your friends, isn't that the truth? Is that we have friends of all different shapes and sizes, persuasions, political parties. Why don't we simply engage in that dialogue? Thank you so much for joining us and for bringing your passion to the show. I am so pleased that that you joined us and really kind of fired all of us up to really think through some of the great advice you've given us. So thank you, Bridget.
1: Thank you so
3: thank much. You, have a great day.
2: Yes, thank you. And thank so you to bad. our listeners for joining us. Have a wonderful, safe weekend. Please join us next week for more of Today with Dr. Wendy, Headlines with the Silver Lining. Have a great week, and God bless
1: you.